even just add some comments to what Michael said. First of all, I'm just so glad to be at this place in the life of our church, and I'm so glad to be doing it with you, Crestmont. I, I really do believe we have great days ahead, amen, as a church. And uh, so many of the things you know, that we've been praying for for a long time, I do believe we're on the cusp of experiencing um, in even greater measure, and you are part of that. Each one of you are part of that. There's no, you know, we don't want a church where there's anyone on the sidelines, right? Everyone has a part to play. Um, everybody does. And uh, I just want to say, Michael was um, talking about our interaction with our district leadership. So, you know, we're not an isolated church. We're in a group of churches, and we have a, a district that covers western Pennsylvania. And uh, it, has, it has been very encouraging to be interacting with them in the last few weeks because I think some of what God has been stirring here is actually not uncommon to what he's stirring in many of our sister churches and in the, the Christian Missionary Alliance as a whole. Um, I'm really too young like, to, to probably speak to this with any kind of authority or insight or knowledge, but my sense is that in the 80s and 90s, um, our leaders realized that there was a desperate need for renewal in the Christian Missionary Alliance, that in some ways we had begun to, to lose our way. Um, and it just feels like uh, we are stepping into an increased measure of what the Holy Spirit has for us. Um, you know, all along the way, at least since I've been here at the church, I would say we've always sensed permission from our district leaders to be who God is calling us to be. Um, we've always sensed permission. I'm not sure we've ever felt blessing like we are right now from district leadership. Um, and that is so exciting. As a matter of fact, our district superintendent, Dave Noggle, the last lunch that I had with him, he said, Joel, he said, there are many churches in the district who are realizing that in their history, they grieved the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was starting to move, and either because of fear or disobedience or whatever, they shut down the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. It grieves the Spirit when we do that. Paul says, do not quench. You know, he says, do not quench, you know, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so he shared with me, his sister church, I don't know which one it is, he didn't name it, that church to me, but he said, there's a church that realized that 20 years ago, the Spirit was breaking into the church and really wanted, you know, to do some things. But for whatever reason, you know, church politics or whatever, um, it kind of all just ended. And he said, he, was, he said, Joel, last week, he said, I was at that church. He said, they had an assembly together as a church to repent for grieving the Spirit, you know, in that way, and said, hey, we want you to come back. Isn't that cool? <laughs> hey, we want you to come back. And he said they made, they actually, they felt led to do this. They made white flags in the service, and they were waving these white flags and saying, we surrender. Lord, whatever you want us to be, you know, we surrender to that. Because church, we can't pray for revival and then dictate to the Holy Spirit what it looks like, right? Um, there's no such thing as that. Um, he's sovereign. The Holy Spirit is God. You understand that, right? The Holy Spirit's not like a preference of some churches, right? The Holy Spirit is God. 
And there's no such thing as a church, a true New Testament church that is not also spirit-filled. The Bible does not conceive of such a thing. And we are Bible people, right? Let me just say that. We're spirit people, but we're Bible people, right? Because we believe he inspired this, right? And this helps us understand how he works and how he moves. So while we embrace everything that the Spirit does and we embrace his present work activity and his move, um, you know, we're Bible people. I just want to say that, (laughs) all right? We love the Word of God, all right? Now, often, the Spirit will challenge us, right, in our understandings of Scripture because we all come to this book with our own you know, preferences and limitations, and God often has to deal with that. But we're Bible people. We love the Word, right? Let's say it. We love the Word. Amen. All right. Okay. Tangent. All right. This month, uh, we are emphasizing joining a smaller gathering. So I just want to point this out. I have two words for you. The first is join. Um, Listen, at At Crestmont, we have a number of smaller gatherings that meet throughout uh, the week, and you can find a list of all of them at the new display out in in the foyer. And I just encourage you, if you haven't connected to a smaller gathering than this one, find a place to connect. I see such a difference. Um, just in the level of connection between people who are able to connect in a, in a smaller gathering and folks who can only come on Sunday morning. And this gathering is great, but we're also not sure that this is the place where you can really go deep in relationships, and we want that for you. So please join. And then the second word I want to give you is invite. If you're in a smaller gathering, invite people to your smaller gathering, you know, whatever it is. And this includes small group, missional community, city group, mops, Just anything smaller than this, all right? Um, Invite people to it. I would love it if when new people came into the church, and I think like nearly every Sunday at Crestmont, we have new people here. I would love it if when new people came in, they got like four or five invitations to smaller gatherings, all right? So if you're in a smaller gathering, you can invite, all right? So you don't need to question. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Just invite And even if you're not in a smaller gathering, I guess you can tell someone to go to a smaller gathering. I don't know. So invite and join, all right? We want you to do that. And if you're not sure which smaller gathering would be a good fit for you, then there's uh, some general contact information on the cards out at the Welcome Center. And you can call us, and we'll help you process that, that, just where would be a good place for you to connect. Okay. Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. And it will be on the screen behind me. So in Luke uh, 24, the beginning of the chapter um, documents for us Jesus' resurrection. These women disciples go to the tomb. They have spices with them. Uh, They're they're going to care for Jesus' body. And when they get there, they find that the stone has been rolled away. Two angels appear to them, tell them that Jesus is alive. We had a good time last Sunday, didn't we? It was fun. Jesus is alive, and they, stunned, run back to the 11, um, and they tell them that this is what has happened. There's some skepticism about if these women can be believed or not. But then the Gospels outline, outline for us how from this point on, until Jesus ascends back to the Father, that he appears to the disciples in different settings. 
many of these settings, it's interesting, there's sometimes where he appears in front of a big group, but many of the appearances of the resurrected Christ are in smaller, intimate settings, settings that emphasize for us that this is a real resurrection and that Jesus truly has physically come back from the dead. So Jesus is doing things like eating meals with people and talking with people and, and letting us know this isn't a ghost, right? That this is actually Jesus risen from the dead. And so this is one of his appearances uh, to two of his disciples and really one of my favorite passages of scripture. I'm so glad we get to be in it today. Uh, this is a longer passage, so you can stay seated while I read it, but we'll begin in Luke 24, verse 13. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I love this. Jesus plays with these disciples a little bit. Um, you, we've talked before about how there's these passages where Jesus will provoke and kind of poke, and this is one of them. Um, Luke gives us the advantage of knowing more of the story than the characters in the story do at this point. Like, we know it's fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, but these characters, uh, you know, these two disciples don't know it. All right. Where did I leave off? We'll start at verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Isn't this cool? It's like, hey, Jesus, have you heard about Jesus? All right. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women this morning uh, uh, amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Great story. Love that story. All right. Notice the state of these disciples when Jesus finds them. You know, he, he asks them. Obviously, Jesus knows what has happened, but he asks the disciples, so tell me, what is it that you're talking about? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that hasn't heard everything that's happening? And then they say this in verse 26 about Jesus. 
Did not the Messiah have to, I'm sorry, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests, rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And then they say this, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Have you ever been in a place in your life or in your ministry where you felt like your hopes have been dashed? Have you ever been in that place? Like where you felt like you took the risk to believe that God was actually going to do something in the present only to find that he didn't in the timeline that you had hoped that it would happen. It didn't happen in the present like you wanted it to be. That's where these disciples are. I mean, I don't know how long they had followed Jesus, but they dared to believe that he was who he said he was and that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. They operated in faith in following him. And it must have seemed like at this point, after Jesus' crucifixion and burial, and then they've heard rumors about a resurrection, but for all they know, the body has just been stolen out of the grave for some reason. It must have seemed like hope was gone. It must have seemed like this emotional roller coaster, like they thought God was going to break through and then it didn't happen. You know, there is always an emotional risk to, to operating in the kind of faith that says God is going to do something in the present, right? It's easier to say that God did something in the past. And it's easier to say God's going to do something in the far future. Like Jesus is going to come again. We know he's going to come again. But where the emotional risk comes is saying, I think God's going to do something in the present. Um, one time, a few years ago, I was in Atlanta with some friends, and we were at a conference that was focused on Jesus as healer. And so there was a lot of teaching about how to pray for the sick, great teaching from the word. And you really can't teach on Jesus being healer without practicing praying for the sick. And we saw God do some amazing things that week. I mean, one of my friends prayed for someone who was deaf in one year. It opened up. I mean, some really cool things. You know, it was great to see it. Um, but the guy who was leading uh, our time together, who really had been all around the world praying for the sick, he preached a message I'll never forget. There's not very many messages I've heard that I remember forever. You know what I mean? I know you guys remember all of mine. So I know it. Um, but there's not very many I remember, like, the outline from, like, a long time later. But this was one I did. It was the, uh, the name of the sermon was called The Agony of Defeat, which I thought was so powerful because here we are, this conference, where we're daring to believe that Jesus can break in and healing in the present. And, in fact, he was. But there's this sermon, The Agony of Defeat. And he shared with us five different times where he was around the world praying for the sick. And sometimes in these meetings, uh, God would break in in power and they'd see amazing, miraculous things. But all five stories surrounded children who had not been healed. And he ended each one by saying the same thing. That night, hundreds of people got healed, but all I could think about was that one kid, that one family that didn't. There wasn't a dry eye in the room, you know, as he talked about that. And he said to us, he said, listen, for those of you who dare to believe that God can move in the present, who dare to believe that Jesus is healer, that he can heal the sick, that he can work miraculously, not just back then, not in the future, but now, he said, don't let anybody tell you that you are flaky, emotional, health and wealth gospel. He was like, don't let anybody tell you that because you have to take an emotional risk that most churches and most people are not willing to take. See, the reason we often don't pray big prayers is because we don't want to take that emotional risk. You see? Because for me, 
Nothing has made me wrestle more with the sovereignty of God. Nothing has made me wrestle more with the goodness of God than praying big prayers and sometimes seeing God do amazing things and sometimes feeling like our hopes were dashed. See, nothing will take you quicker to the place where God will ask you, do you love me for me or do you love me for the stuff I give you? See, nothing will take you there quicker than praying big prayers like that. And it's why we have to. You know, it's so much easier to not take the emotional risk and to come up with either a theology or a church experience that says God doesn't do this stuff anymore. Then you don't have to risk at all. You're just waiting for some big event in the future. But it's much more of a risk to take it now, you know, to pray those big prayers now. These disciples risked, and now they're feeling like their hopes are dashed. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Now, they may have been misguided in their hopes, hoping that Jesus would have released Israel from Roman occupation, but nonetheless, they had hoped. Jesus' response is this in verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer? You see, sometimes I hear Christians talk like if it's really the Holy Spirit or if God is really working, then you're just going to go from amazing victory to amazing victory to amazing victory. But that's not what the Bible says. It's just not in the Bible. It's just not there. The Bible's honest story is that, yes, all of history is moving toward the victory of God. Amen? But there is suffering along the way. It was predestined for the Messiah to suffer. It had to be this way. There was no way around the cross. There was no way to glory that did not go through the cross. And then I love this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So in the New Testament where it says the law and the prophets or Moses and the prophets, it's shorthand really for all of the Old Testament. All right, so New Testament hadn't been written. What they have is the Old Testament so beginning in the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. I wish I could have been there for that talk. Isn't that cool? He, they had seven miles to walk. He, he went through the whole Old Testament, you know, and pointed out to them that every part of the story was pointing to him. Now, there's something instructive here about how we read scripture because really, it's incorrect or at best incomplete if we read any of Scripture and do not see how it's tying into the story of Jesus. Because that's what the whole book is about. That's why at Crestmont, we say here, we preach Jesus. Because it's possible to teach and preach out of Scripture, but to miss that. To not connect it to Jesus. And then we just know some information and facts, but we're kind of missing the whole point, you know? that from beginning to end, Jesus is the point of the story. And so, I just thought, why not? Let's just do it this morning. Let's go to the book of Genesis. We're going to go there. You all are, like, nervous right now. Like, is he really going through the whole Bible? Not the whole Bible, but I do want to turn to Genesis. Look at Genesis. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 3. I know some of you know this, but this is the beginning of the story, right? Genesis 3. You know, humanity has fallen. Adam and Eve have messed up, rebelled against God. They all of a sudden are aware of their nakedness, they're ashamed, they hide. 
God comes in his mercy and grace and finds them, and then he speaks to the serpent that tempted them and to the man and to the woman. And look what he says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy we have in the Old Testament about who? Jesus. Right at the beginning of the story, right after humanity's big mess up, what God says is, look, the offspring of the woman, the human race, and Satan are going to be enemies. But this time is going to come when someone comes out of the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the devil, but in that moment, his heel will get struck, and the devil will strike him, but in the end, there's a loser and a winner. The devil loses, and Jesus wins, right? That's what happened at the cross. So this is the first prophecy that we have about Jesus, all the way at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of the story here. And then, we could keep going here in 321. It says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. One of the first things we learn about God's response to sin is that he covers the shame of the sinner. Isn't that amazing? God covers the shame of the sinner. That tells us something that ultimately culminates in Jesus. Or, I've been reflecting on this lately. It's been touching my heart. In Genesis 4, Cain, who's the first murderer that we have recorded in Scripture, he murders his own brother. After the Lord gives him the consequences for his sin, Cain is worried that people are going to despise him and kill him. And this is what God says in Genesis 4.15 to Cain, the murderer. He says, no, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so one of the first things we learn about God is that he protects sinners. Isn't that cool? How many of you are glad that God covers the shame of and protects sinners? <laughs> Isn't that good? That's such a wonderful thing. Well, all of this finds its culmination in Jesus. And I could keep going through the Old Testament this morning. You know, there's these Old Testament appearances, right, of the angel of the Lord, it says in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord wrestles with Jacob in the book of Genesis. The angel of the Lord appears to Joshua in the book of Joshua before they enter the promised land. And then this amazing story, right, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego during the time of Israel's exile and they refuse to bow down to the idol that this pagan king wants them to worship. And so they get thrown into this fiery furnace. But the people who are watching these guys supposed to burn up see that they don't burn up. They're standing in the fiery furnace. And there's not three. There's four. Who's the fourth? Well, the early church recognized that these appearances of the angel of the Lord and the fourth person in the furnace were like appearances of Jesus before he was even on the earth. He was active in the history of Israel. Now, you may be aware of that, but let's be honest here too, that this book is really honest and has a really messy story. See, this is, this is where my mind goes. Jesus tells them where all the parts of the story pointed to him. Well, I just shared with you some great parts of the story, you know, some victorious parts of the story, but what about the messy parts? What about when Israel, God's own people, wander in the desert for 40 years because of their own stubbornness and sinfulness? Does somehow that point to Jesus? The book of Judges, which by no stretch of the imagination is rated G, right? 
Man, such a rough book. Some of the roughest stuff you will read in the scriptures is in the book of Judges. You know, the author is making this point that Israel is lacking leadership. And in the void of leadership, uh, all of these terrible things happen. And violent things, awful things. And even the leaders that God does raise up, are, they're so messed up themselves in the chaos of that. Does somehow the chaotic parts of the story point to Jesus? Or what about the exile when Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians and the people are carried off for many years into a foreign nation and God uses these leaders, you know, Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah, and the people are waiting and longing to get back home. Do the parts of the story where they're waiting to get back home somehow point to Jesus too? See, one reason I believe this book, church, is because it's so honest. I wouldn't believe this book if it were all roses and peach puffs. Peach <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Cinnamon rolls, thank you. That's better. <laughs> you're not, not going to find peach puffs So this book. <laughs> I wouldn't believe it, though, and neither would you. See, one reason we believe the story is because it is as messed up or as worse than our own lives, right? And see... When Jesus points out where he was in the story, he's pointing out where he was in their story. You know, these, these are two Jewish guys. This story is their story. And now in Christ, by extension, it's our story too. <laughs> but he's, he's pointing out where he was all along in the story. And not just in the glorious, victorious parts, but I would imagine, especially since he's trying to help them understand how the Messiah just died on the cross, I imagine he especially is pointing out to them where he was in the messy parts of the story and where messiness was even prophesied. You know, Isaiah, wounded for our transgressions, by his stripes we are healed, the prophet says, 700 years before Jesus came, prophesied that Jesus would suffer, points out where he's at, even in these difficult parts. Now, I love this because then their eyes open as they sit down for dinner. I think the Holy Spirit allowed this to happen. Verse 31, as Jesus is breaking bread, their eyes open, they recognize him, and he disappeared from their sight. So now they can see that Jesus is near to them too. And this is, this is just what I want to tell you this morning. Listen, when we learn to see where Jesus was in the past story, listen, then we will recognize him in the present moment. See, when we learn to see where he was back there, then we will learn to see where he is right now. See, but sometimes God keeps from us where he is right now because he wants to first show us that he was there all along. See, he wants to first show us in his mercy that he was there in the bad parts of the story, that he was there in the pain, that he was there in our failures. He was there when we didn't have any hope left. He was there when we were alone, there when we were abused, there in our regrets, right? He was there. This is why often, you know, we're learning to do this at Crestmont, that when we pray for people and people come forward uh, for prayer, 
um, often we will allow the Lord to minister to the memories of the person because Jesus was there. And, you know, and, and we have these painful memories sometimes, and they feel totally void of God. And often God, in, in his mercy and his grace, will show us where he was. And then an amazing thing happens. The person's capacity to see where the Lord is in the present gets restored to them. Isn't that amazing? But he wants to show us where he was all along, where he was in the midst of all of that heartache all of that pain. And I think this is one of the most powerful things, church, that we can do for other people as well. You know, for us, God wants to show us where he was in the really bad stuff. But I also think he wants to use us to help point out to people where he was. So this is how I learned how to share Jesus with people. And I'm, not, I'm like, I'm going to bless what I can bless. But how I learned to share Jesus with people was I had memorized a scripture outline and then I would kind of barf it onto someone, all right? <laughs> and then hope it stuck. <laughs> hope they didn't wipe it off, <laughs> you know? And so, so it felt like success if I, were, if I was able to get through all of these scriptures, you know, with the person. And especially felt like success if they prayed some magical prayer at the end, Right? If I said all the scriptures to them and they prayed the prayer, boom, they're in, right? And then I had a testimony. Now listen, I'm not saying that all of that is bad, but this is what I am saying. God often already has an outline in someone's life. He often already is writing a story in that person's life. Do you, you know, if you spent some time outside of the church before you really started following Jesus, then you especially know this. But if you're in the church, you might be blind to it. But so many people feel offended when a Christian comes to them and acts like they had no experience of God until this mighty Christian on a white horse came riding into their life with an outline to barf onto them. <laughs> right? You know, many people outside of the church Many people who don't know anything about Jesus have a profound sense that God has been at work in their lives. You know, they might not be putting it together. They might be, I often see this, they might be reaching to pop culture for language to describe it. But they often have a sense that God has already been doing something. And so one of the most powerful things that we can do is listen, which is what Jesus started by doing with these disciples. One of the most powerful things we can do is listen to the stories of people. So, I had the opportunity to walk with a friend of mine as he was beginning to follow Jesus. And the first time we talked, I remember this, the first time we talked, um, you know, he said to me, he said, he said, Joel, I feel like recently, like I have this thought that God can forgive sin. He was like, do you think that's true, that God can forgive sin? I was like, I do think that's true, yeah. And, and then he started telling me more of his story. And the story was messy. There was all this heartache and pain and sin and all of this stuff that was wrapped up in his story. But he said to me, he was like, one night, Joel, he said, I was sitting at the ocean. And, and he wasn't in Beaver County, not the North Shore, <laughs> the real ocean. <laughs> it wasn't in Allegheny County. All right. Um, and he was like, I was sitting at the ocean. And he said, I'm looking at the stars. and I'm hearing the waves. And he said, and that's when it occurred to me that God could forgive sin. Isn't that crazy? Waves and stars taught him that, but the Bible says that can happen. 
right? That, that, that creation speaks, you know, to the truthfulness of who God is. And then he said, one day when I was hungry, he said, I was standing outside of this restaurant and, and this guy came out of the restaurant. He had just bought his meal and he saw me standing there and he said, hey, I think I'm supposed to give this to you. That guy was a believer and he, my friend remembered that story, how God had provided for him in this really odd way on this day when he needed provision. And he had so many stories like that. He just kept going on with all of these stories. And I listened. And you know what? I didn't quite know what to say to him. And you know what, guys? When you're loving on people in Jesus' name, it's okay to not know what to say, right? It's okay to not have words, just to sit on it. So I went to prayer. And this passage of scripture came to me. It was Acts chapter 17. If you know, I think 17. If you know anything about that passage, Paul is in Athens, right? Do I have it right, Acts 17? He's in Athens, and, and he's talking to a people who don't know anything about Jesus, but he takes time to listen first. He walks around the city. He observes the religious practices, and this is a people who are worshiping all of these many, many gods, but in the midst of this, he, in the, imagine, in the midst of all this paganism, he finds evidence of the one true God at work. Isn't that crazy? See, we often think God only works in here. It's not true, church. He works out there, too, in the craziest places, often without the help of any of us. It's amazing, <laughs> you know? And so, so listen, he, he's walking around, and he sees this statue to an unknown God, which let him know that there was a longing in the heart of the Athenian people that for all of the gods that they had filled their life with, there was still something missing. And so he stands up in front of them later on and says, the God which you call unknown, I now proclaim to you. Well, that passage of scripture is what came to my mind in prayer. So the next time I sat down with my friend, I said, hey, I have this sense that you, you know, have this profound, like, you know, observation that God has already been at work in your life. And I said, I want to suggest to you what the name of that God is, and his name is Jesus. And he said, well, uh, you know, I've seen pictures of Jesus in a, in a book, but that's pretty much it. Can you tell me about him? So I started to tell him about Jesus, and it was amazing, Diane, because, listen, because he started, he, he started to say, yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. That's just like him. Yes, that's it. See, Jesus had been at work all along, and this is one of the most powerful things that we can do for people, is to listen to the good parts of their stories, to the bad parts of their stories, and then just point out for them where God was already at work in all of that. Now, it, and it takes listening because they might be using language that's different than what we use in the church. You know, they might be grasping for language from other places, but if you can listen and expect that God shows up in the most unlikely places, then God can really use us to bring someone along in faith. Is that helpful? Okay. Lastly, I'm going to close with this. I love this. After Jesus leaves them, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? See? After he leaves, they said, look, even on the road, our hearts started to burn. I wonder what that was. Like, were they sensing something familiar here? You know, was the spirit beginning to stir in them? But I think at least one thing was happening, and it's that they were beginning to hope again. 
they were beginning to hope again. Maybe, and sometimes hoping the second time feels scarier than hoping the first time. Am I saying something true? Sometimes hoping the second time feels scarier than hoping the first time, to dare to believe, to hope again. But here they were beginning to hope because this is how it works. When Jesus shows us how he was there in our stories, and church, I've never met anybody, anybody yet, where Jesus was not at work in that story already. You know, any, I, I'm telling you, not in this church, not on the street, not in my neighborhood. If you take time to listen to people, listen to people at your workplaces, you're going to find that Jesus was already at work there, you know? But when we begin to see that Jesus was at work in the past, in all of those crazy circumstances, he was showing up in his grace and his mercy, even when we didn't ask him, because Jesus is a little pushy in his love, right? Even when we didn't ask him and he was showing up, um, when we begin to see that, then our eyes open to how close and near he is to us now because if he was there then, he certainly is here with us now. Maybe not in the way we expected. Maybe not in the story that we had written or dictated, but in the way that Jesus wants. In his grace and his mercy, he is here now. And then an amazing thing happens. We do begin to believe that Jesus is going to be in the future too because it's just logical if he was there for all of that, and if he's there for all of this now, then he's going to be there for all of that in the future, right? And that, my friends, is called hope. <laughs> when you begin to believe that Jesus, despite your brokenness, despite how messy your story is or the story of the people around you, when you begin to believe that Jesus is somewhere in the future of your story, you're beginning to hope again. Did not our hearts burn within us when we were on the road? If you'd stand to your feet. Man. Hey, I just have a challenge for you this morning as we close. Today's message is for us, but it's also for people that God has put our lives in close proximity to. There's not a person in this room that isn't in contact with people whose stories need to be heard. There's not one of us here who isn't in contact with somebody whose story doesn't need to be heard. Listen, if you're all stressed out about sharing Jesus with people, well, back up. If you're all stressed out about sharing Jesus with people, then you have some kind of wrong conception of what sharing Jesus actually is. I just want to say that, first of all. If for you, and I get it because I was made to feel this way many times, if for you it's all guilt-ridden and guilt-driven, then just stop and take a deep breath for a little bit, all right? Because that's not how it's supposed to be. Listen, you might not know what to say, but it's okay if you don't know what to say. It's because we think that that's not okay that we come up with outlines to barf on people, right? It, that's why, because we think, we think we always have to have the answers. Pastors are the worst at that, always thinking they have to have the answers. You don't have to have the answers. All you have to do is love people, right? And so you're in proximity to people who whose stories need to be told. And my prayer for you, church, this week is that you have the gift and the honor and the privilege of listening to someone's story. That's my only challenge for you this week, is that you have the gift and the honor and the privilege of listening to someone's story. It may be in this church. It may be outside of this church. But I don't care who you are. There's no one in here that isn't able to do that, right? 
that isn't able to sit and listen. Any of you can do that. And then if you don't know what to say, just love on the person. It's always right to love somebody, you know. Just love on the person. You don't need to preach at them, give them, you know, nothing like that. And then just pray for them and ask the Lord to begin to show you and that person where Jesus was already writing the outline. Because then we just partner with that. And before we know it, friends, people are walking with Jesus. Right? Amen? Before we know it, people are getting baptized. (laughs) Amen? Before we know it, people are getting filled with the Spirit. But we were just cooperating with the outline that God is writing. So if that's stirring your heart and you feel like it, just, just lift our hands and let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would connect people in this room to people who need to tell their stories this week. And Lord, we just say we're available, we're ready, like you were ready and available for these two disciples. Lord, connect us to the hopeless stories, to the places where people have stopped hoping. And Lord, give us the gift and the honor and the privilege of just listening and love and gently pointing out where Jesus was at work all along so that the hearts of people can begin to burn again with faith and with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. You're dismissed.